Welcome back to the logs and welcome back or welcome to a new series uh, called Text to Life, a brand new series from the logs that governs over literature. I've been thinking about something new. What do I need to add or what do I want to add rather to the to the podcast that I enjoy and that I want to research and discover more? And I kept coming back to old novels and pieces, poems that we, that I personally covered in my classes at school, be that high school or in, in college and university. And what I'd like to do is revisit some of those things and see how they apply to life now and, and just get a story out of it too. And that's really why it's called Text to Life. Just bringing some of these old stories that maybe in their day when we were reading them in, in school weren't the most thrilling things and make them something more fun, something that we can enjoy and maybe learn something from. So that's text to life. That's what we're going to do here. We're going to discover some new stories. We're going to rediscover some old stories that we we once heard, and we're going to be all better for it, right? Because what's better than stories? As the very latest episode of Game of Thrones has told us, right? You can become a king with stories. You can become the life of the party with stories, and stories are what make us all up. So welcome. Welcome to this new series. Welcome to Text to Life. Let's get right into the first episode. Socrates or Socrates. What does that bring up in your head, in your mind when you say that name? In, in most people and in mine, surely, it brings up philosophy. I automatically think Socrates, oh, the father of Western philosophy. The Socratic method, Socratic versions of thought, Western ideals that are held by everyone in the West today were created by Socrates thousands of years ago, created in his mind. He taught the youth. People would run to him and ask him, Socrates, what is knowledge? What is the world? Tell us, tell us what we need to know to grow up, need to know to be functioning citizens in this new democracy. Socrates' most famous student was Plato, and Plato would write a lot about his teacher, and he would write the stories that we're going to cover today. Because for Socrates, his legacy did live on in all of Western thought and in his students. Plato would move on and he would teach Aristotle. He would be the teacher to Aristotle, and then Aristotle would go on to teach Alexander the Great, a lineage that falls through the golden age of Athens, to the Macedonian expansion of Greece and of Greek culture, the domination of the Persian Empire, and then the slow inception of the Roman Empire. The teaching of Socrates, they changed the game in terms of the West. They laid the foundation for the Roman Empire, the empire that with Latin and with Greek thought would revolutionize Europe and send it into the modern world. So I think that it's very important when we look back at what we studied in school that we look to the death of Socrates, the death outlined by Plato. We look to the trial and death of Socrates. Throughout his life, Plato would write many things, and the most famous of which would be the Republic, which is, again, very influenced by Socrates. But writing that later in his life, he would write a lot more of himself into it. So more of his own morals and virtues, his ideals would pop up 
that kind of differ from what Socrates had to say. But what we're covering here is the five dialogues. The story of the trial and death of Socrates, his own teacher. Now these five stories, these five dialogues rather, they cover the end of Socrates. From his trial, of course, to his death. And they outline different pieces of the story. In this first one, this first dialogue that we will cover today, we see a man called Euthyphro, or Eusifro, or Ephthyphro, if you want to say it the Greek way, who runs into Socrates at the king's archon court. And he wonders, why is Socrates, the great philosopher, here at a place of justice? For he has no business with, with justice, with the politicians of the city. He's a teacher. And thus, the dialogue between these two people begins in the dialogue by Plato called Euthyphro. Now, we don't really know who Euthyphro is in this story. What's told in the dialogue, what we are about to hear is that he is some kind of professional priest. And he considers himself to be an expert on ancient Greek ritual, or in his time, Greek ritual. And he considers himself to be a very pious person. He's very religious. And later on in the actual dialogue between these two people, we're going to cover that. Well, they are. They're going to talk about what it means to be pious. But before, they have to come into contact. And they do so at the king's archon court. And the dialogue starts like this. Why have you left the Lyceum, Socrates, and what are you doing in the porch of the king's archon? Surely you cannot be concerned in a suit before the king like myself. Not in a suit, Euthyphro. Impeachment is the word which the Athenians use. What? I suppose that someone has been prosecuting you? For I cannot believe that you are the prosecutor of another. Certainly not. Then someone else has been prosecuting you? Yes. And who is he? A young man who is little known, Euthyphro, and I barely know him. His name is Melitus, and he is of the deem of Pythis. Perhaps you may remember his appearance. He has a beak, and a long, straight head, and a beard which is ill-grown. No, I do not remember him, Socrates. But what is the charge which he brings against you? What is the charge? Well, a very serious charge, which shows a good deal of the character of the young man, and for which he is certainly not to be despised. He says he knows how the youth are corrupted, and who are their corruptors. I fancy that he must be a wise man, and seeing that I am the reverse of a wise man, he has found me out, and is going to accuse me of corrupting his young friends. And of this our mother the state is to be the judge. Of all our political men, he is the only one who seems to begin in the right way, with the cultivation of virtue and youth. Like a good husbandman, he makes the young shoots his first care, and clears away us who are the destroyers of them. This is only the first step. He will afterwards attend to the elder branches. And if he goes on, as he has begun, he will be the very great public benefactor. I hope that he may, and I rather fear, Socrates, that the opposite will turn out to be the truth. My opinion is that in attacking you, he is simply aiming a blow at the foundation of the state. But in what way does he say that you are corrupting the young? He brings a wonderful accusation against me which at first hearing excites surprise. He says that I am a poet or maker of gods, 
and that I invent new gods and deny the existence of old ones. This is the ground of his indictment. I understand, Socrates. He means to attack you about the familiar sign which occasionally, as you say, comes to you. He thinks that you are a neologian and that he is going to have you up before the court for this. He knows that such a charge is readily received by the world as I myself know too well. For when I speak in the assembly about divine beings and foretell the future to them, they laugh at me and think me a madman. Yet every word that I say is true. But they are jealous of us all and we must brave and go at them. Their laughter, friend Euthyphro, is not a matter of such consequence. For a man may be thought wise, but the Athenians, I suspect, do not much trouble themselves about him until he begins to impart his wisdom to others. And then for some reason or other, perhaps, as you say, from jealousy, they are angry. I am never likely to try their temper in this way. I dare not say that, for you are revered in your behavior and seldom impart your wisdom. But I have a benevolent habit of pouring out myself to everybody and would even pay for a listener and I am afraid that the Athenians may think me too talkative. Now, if, as I was saying, they would only laugh at me as you say that they laugh at you, the right time might pass gaily enough in the court, but perhaps they may not be in earnest, and then what the end will be only the soothsayers can predict. I dare not say that the affair will end in nothing, Socrates, and that you will win your case. And I think that I should win my own. And what is your suit, Euthyphro? Are you the pursuer or the defendant? I am the pursuer. Of whom? You will think me mad when I tell you. Why, has the fugitive wings? Nay, he is not very volatile at his time of life. Who is he? My father. Your father? My good man? Yes. And of what is he to be accused? Of murder, Socrates. By the powers, Euthyphro, how little does the common herd know of the nature of right and truth? A man must be an extraordinary man and have made great strides in wisdom before he could have even seen his way to bring such an action. Indeed, Socrates, he must. I suppose that the man whom your father murdered was one of your relatives, clearly he was. For if he had been a stranger, you would never have thought of prosecuting him. I am amused, Socrates, that you're making a distinction between one who is a relation and one who is not a relation. For surely the pollution is the same in either case. If you knowingly associate with the murderer when you ought to clear yourself of him by proceeding against him, the real question is whether the murdered man has been justly slain. If justly, then your duty is to let the matter alone. But if unjustly, then... Even if the murderer lives under the same roof with you and eats at the same table, proceed against him. Now the man who is dead was a poor dependent of mine, who worked for us as a field laborer on our farm in Naxos. And one day in a fit of drunken passion he got into a quarrel with one of our domestic servants and slew him. My father bound him hand and foot and threw him into a ditch, and then sent to Athens to ask of a diviner what he should do with him. Meanwhile, he never attended to him and took no care about him, for he regarded him as a murderer and thought that no great harm would be done even if he did die. Now this was just what happened, for 
Such was the effect of cold and hunger and chains upon him, that before the messenger returned from the diviner, he was dead. And now my father and family are angry with me for taking the part of the murderer and prosecuting my father. They say that he did not kill him. And if he did, the dead man was a murderer. And I ought to not take any notice, for that a son is impious who prosecutes a father. Which shows, Socrates, how little they know what the gods think about piety and impiety. Good heavens, Euthyphro, and is your knowledge of religion and of things pious and impious so very exact that, supposing the circumstances to be as you state them, you are not afraid lest you too may be doing an impious thing in bringing an action against your father? The best of Euthyphro and what distinguishes him, Socrates, from other men is his exact knowledge of such matter. What should I be good for without it? Rare friend, I think that I cannot do better than be your disciple. Then before the trial with Melitus comes, and I shall challenge him and say that I have always had a great interest in religious questions, and now, as he charges me with rash imaginations and innovations in religion, I have become your disciple. You, Melitus, as I shall say to him, acknowledge Euthyphro to be a great theologian, and sound in his opinions, and if you approve of him, you ought to approve of me, and not have me into court. But if you disapprove, you should begin by indicting him who is my teacher, and who will be the ruin, not of the young, but of the old, that is to say, of myself who he instructs, and of his old father whom he admonishes and chastises. And if Melitus refuses to listen to me, but will go on, and will not shift the indictment from me to you, I cannot do better than repeat this challenge in the court. You indeed, Socrates, and if he attempts to indict me, I am mistaken if I do not find a flaw in him. The court shall have a great deal more to say to him than me. And I, my dear friend, knowing this, I am desirous of becoming your disciple, for I observe that no one appears to notice you, not even this Melitus, but his sharp eyes have found me out at once and he has indicted me for impiety, and therefore I adjure you to tell me the nature of piety and impiety, which you said that you knew so well, and of murder, and of other offenses against the gods. What are they? Is not impiety in every action the same? Always the same and impiety? Again, is it not always the opposite of piety? And also the same with itself, having as impiety one notion which includes whatever is impious? To be sure, Socrates. And what is piety and what is impiety? Piety is doing as I am doing. That is to say, prosecuting anyone who is guilty of murder, or of any similar crime, whether he be your father or mother, or whoever he may be that makes no difference, and not to prosecute them is impiety. And please do consider, Socrates, what a notable proof I would give you the truth of my words, a proof which I have already given to others, of the principle, I mean, that the impious, whoever they may be, ought to not go unpunished. For do not men regard Zeus as the best and most righteous of the gods? And yet they admit that he bound of his father Kronos because he wickedly devoured his own sons, and that he too had punished his own father, Uranos, for a similar reason, in a nameless manner, and yet when I proceed against my father, they are angry with me, so inconsistent as they are in their way of talking when the gods are concerned. 
And when I am concerned, may not this be the reason, Euthyphro, why I am charged with impiety, that I cannot away with these stories about the gods? And therefore I suppose that people think me wrong. But as you, who are well informed about them, approve of them, I cannot do better than assent to your superior wisdom. What else can I say, confessing as I do, that I know nothing about them? Tell me, for the love of Zeus, whether you really believe that they are true. Yes, Socrates, they are true. And things are more wonderful still, of which the world is still in ignorance. And do you really believe the gods fought with one another and had dire quarrels, battles, and the like, as the poets say, and as you may see represented in the works of great artists? The temples are full of them, and notably the role of Athens which is carried up to the Acropolis as the great Panathenea is embroidered with all of them. Are all these tales of the gods true, Euthyphro? Yes, Socrates, and as I was saying, I can tell you, if you would like to hear them, many other things about the gods which would quite amaze you. I dare say, and you shall tell me them at some other time when I have leisure. But just at present I would rather hear from you a more precise answer, which you have not as yet given, my friend, to the question, what is piety? When asked, you only replied, doing as you do, charging your father with murder. And what I said was true, Socrates. No doubt, Euthyphro, but you would admit that there are many other pious acts. There are. Remember that I did not ask you to give me two or three examples of piety, but to explain the general idea which makes all pious things to be pious. Do you not recollect that there was one idea which made the impious impious and the pious pious? I remember. Tell me what is the nature of this idea, and then I shall have a standard to which I may look, and by which I may measure actions whether yours or those of anyone else. And then I shall be able to say that such and such an action is pious and such another is impious. I will tell you if you like. I should very much like. Piety, then, is that which is dear to the gods, and impiety is that which is not dear to them. Very good, Euthyphro. You have now given me the sort of answer which I wanted, but... But rather what you say is true or not, I cannot tell. Although I make no doubt that you will prove the truth of your words. Of course. Come then and let us examine what we are saying. That thing or person which is dear to the gods is pious. And that thing or person which is hateful to the gods is impious. These two being extreme opposites of one another. Was that not said? It was. And well said? Yes, Socrates. I thought so. It was certainly said. And further, Euthyphro, the gods are admitted to have hatreds and differences. Yes, that was also said. And what sort of difference creates enmity and anger? Suppose, for example, that you and I, my good friend, differ about a number. Do differences of this sort make us enemies and set us at variance with one another? Do we not go at once to arithmetic and, and put an end to them by a sum? True. Or suppose that we differ about magnitudes, do we not quickly end the differences by measuring? Very true. And we end a controversy about heavy and light by resorting to a weighing machine, to be sure. But what differences are there which cannot be thus decided, and which therefore make us angry, 
and set us angry with one another. I dare not say the answer does not occur to you at this very moment, and therefore I will suggest that these enmities arise when the matters of difference are the just and unjust, good and evil, honorable and dishonorable. Are not these the points about which men differ and about which and about which we are unable satisfactorily to decide our differences? You and I and all of us quarrel when we do quarrel? Yes, Socrates, the nature of differences about which we quarrel is as you describe. And the arguments of the gods noble Euthyphro, when they occur, are of a like nature? Certainly they are. They have differences of opinions, as you say, about good and evil, just and unjust, honorable and dishonorable. There would have been no quarrels among them if there had been so such differences, would there now? You are quite right. Does not every man love that which he deems noble and just and good and hate the opposite of them? Very true. But as you say, people regard the same thing, some as just and others as unjust. About these they dispute, and so there arise wars and fightings among them. Very true. Then the same things are hated by the gods and loved by the gods, and are both hateful and dear to them? True. And upon this view, the same things, Euthyphro, will be pious and also impious. So I should suppose. Then, my friend, I remark with surprise that you have not answered the question which I asked. For I certainly did not ask you to tell me what action is both pious and impious. But now it would seem what is loved by the gods is also hated by them. And therefore, Euthyphro, in thus chastising your father, you may very likely be doing what is agreeable to Zeus but disagreeable to Kronos or Uranus, and what is acceptable to Hephaestus, but unacceptable to Hera. And there may be other gods who have similar differences of opinion, but I believe, Socrates, that all the gods would be agreed as the property of punishing a murderer. There would be no difference of opinion about that. Well, but speaking of men, Euthyphro... Did you ever hear anyone arguing that a murderer or any sort of evildoer ought to be let off? I would rather say that these are the questions which they are always arguing, especially in the courts of law. They commit all sorts of crimes, and there is nothing which they will not do or say in their own defense. But they do admit their guilt, you thiefro, and yet you say that they ought to not be punished? No, they do not. Then there are some things which they do not venture to say or do. For they do not venture to argue that the guilty are to be unpunished. But they deny their guilt, do they not? Yes. Then they do not argue that the evildoer should not be punished. But they argue about the fact of who the evildoer is, and what he did and when. True. And the gods in the same case, if, as you assert, they quarrel about just and unjust, and some of them say while others deny that injustice is done among them, for surely neither God nor man will ever venture to say that the doer of injustice is not to be punished. Yes, that is true, Socrates is the main idea. But they join issue about the particulars gods and men alike, and if they dispute at all, dispute about some act which is called in question, and which is by some affirmed to be just, by others to be unjust, is that not true? Quite true. Well then, Euthyphro, my dear friend, do tell me for my better instruction... And information, what proof have you that, in the question of all the gods, a servant who is guilty of murder 
and is put in chains by the master of the dead man and thus dies because he is put in chains, he who bound him can learn from the interpreters of the gods what he ought to do with him. He dies unjustly. And on behalf of his son, a son who ought to proceed against his father and accuse him of murder, how would you show that all of the gods absolutely agree in approving of his act? Prove to me that they do. And I will applaud your wisdom, your wisdom, as long as I live. It will be a difficult task, but I can make the matter very clear to you. I understand you mean to say that I am not so quick of apprehension as the judges, for to them you are sure to prove that the act is unjust and hateful to the gods. Yes, indeed, Socrates, at least if they will listen to me. But they will be sure to listen if they find that you are a good speaker. There was a notion that came to my mind while you were speaking. I said to myself, well, and what if Euthyphro does prove to me that all of the gods regarded the death of the farmer as unjust? How do I know anything more of the nature of piety and impiety? For granting that this action may be hateful to the gods, still, piety and impiety are not adequately defined by these distinctions. For that which is hateful to the gods has been shown to also be pleasing and dear to them. And therefore, Euthyphro, I do not ask you to prove this. I will suppose, if you like, that all gods condemn and abominate such an action. But I will amend the definition so far as to say that what all the gods hate is impious, and what they love is pious or holy, and what some of them love and others hate is both or neither. Shall this be our definition of piety and impiety? Why not, Socrates? Why not? Certainly, as far as I am concerned, Euthyphro, there is no reason why not. But whether this admission will greatly assist you in the task of instructing me as you promised, it is a matter for you to consider. Yes, I should say that what all the gods love is pious and holy, and the opposite of which is all they hate, impious. Ought we to inquire into the truth of this, Euthyphro, or simply to accept the mere statement of our own authority and that of others? What do you say? We should inquire, and I believe that the statement will stand the test of inquiry. Shall we know better, my good friend, in a little while? That point which I first wish to understand is whether the pious or the holy is beloved by the gods because it is holy, or holy because it is beloved of the gods. I do not understand your meaning, Socrates. I will endeavor to explain. We speak of caring and we speak of being carried, of leading and being led, seeing and being seen. You know that in all such cases there is difference, and you know in what the difference lies. I think that I understand. And is not that which is beloved distinct from that which loves? Certainly. Well, and now tell me, is that which is carried into the state of caring because it is carried or for some other reason? No, that is the reason. And the same is true of what is led and what is seen? True. And a thing is not because it is visible, but conversely, visible because it is seen. Nor is a thing led because it is the state of being led, or carried because it is in the state of being carried. But the converse of this, and now I think, Euthyphro, that my meaning will be intelligible, and my meaning is that any state of action or passion implies previous action or passion. It does not become because it is becoming, but it is in the state of becoming because it becomes. Neither does it suffer because it is in the state of suffering because it is in a state of suffering because it suffers. Do you not agree? Yes. Is not that which is loved in some state either of becoming or suffering? Yes. 
And the same holds as in the previous instances, the state of being loved follows the act of being loved and not the act, the state. Certainly. And what do you say of piety, Euthyphro? Is not piety according to your definition loved by all the gods? Yes, it is, Socrates. Because it is pious or holy or for some other reason. No, Socrates, for that reason. It is loved because it is holy and not holy because it is loved. Yes, Socrates. And, Euthyphro, that which is dear to the gods is loved by them and is in a state to be loved by them because it is loved of them? Certainly. Then that which is dear to the gods, Euthyphro, is not holy, nor is it which is wholly loved of God. As you affirm, but they are two different things? How do you mean, Socrates? I mean to say that the holy has been acknowledged by us to be loved by the gods because it is holy, not to be holy because it is loved. Yes. But that which is dear to the gods is dear to them because it is loved by them, not loved by them because it is dear to them. True. But, friend Euthyphro, if that which is holy is the same with that which is clear to God and is loved because it is holy, then that which is dear to God would have been loved as being dear to God. But if that which is dear to God is dear to him because it is loved by him, then that which is holy would have been holy because loved by him. Then that which is holy would have been holy because it is loved by them. But now do you see that the reverse is the case and that they are quite different from one another? For one lover of the gods is of a kind to be loved because it is loved. And the other is loved because it is a kind to be loved. Thus you appear to me, Euthyphro, when I ask you what is the essence of holiness to offer an attribute only and not the essence, the attribute of being loved by all the gods. But you still refuse to explain to me the nature of holiness. And therefore, if you please, I will ask you not to hide your treasure, but to tell me once more what holiness or piety really is whether dear to the gods or not, and what is impiety. I really do not know, Socrates, how to express what I mean, for somehow or other our argument on whatever ground we rest them seem to turn around and walk away from us. Your words, Euthyphro, are like the handiwork of my ancestor Daedalus, and if I were the sayer or propounder of them, you might say that my arguments walk away and will not remain fixed where they are placed, and I am a descendant of his. You might say that my arguments walk away and will not remain fixed, where they are placed because I am a descendant of his. But now, since these notions are your own, you must find some other guide, for they certainly, as you yourself allow, show an inclination to be on the move. Nay, Socrates, I shall still say that you are the Daedalus who sets arguments in motion, not I, certainly, but you make them move or go around, for they would never have stirred as far as I'm concerned. Then I must be greater than Daedalus, for whereas he only made his own inventions to move, I move those of other people as well. And the beauty of it is that I would rather not, for I would give the wisdom of Daedalus and the wealth of Tantalus to be able to detain them and keep them fixed. But enough of this. As I perceive that you are lazy, I will myself endeavor to show you how you might instruct me in the nature of piety, and I hope that you will not grudge your labor.
tell me then, isn't that which is pious necessarily just? Yes, Socrates. And is then all which is just pious? Or is that which is pious all just? But that which is just only in part or not in all pious? I do not understand you, Socrates. And yet I know that you are as much wiser than I am as you are younger. But as I was saying, revered friend Euthyphro, the abundance of your wisdom makes you lazy, because to exert yourself for there is no reason. Please to exert yourself for there is no real difficulty to understanding me. What I mean I may explain by an illustration of what I do not mean. The poet Stancinos sings, Of Zeus the author and creator of these things, you will not tell... For where there is fear, there is also reverence. Now I disagree with this poet. Shall I tell you in what respect? By all means, Socrates. I should not say that where there is fear, there is also reverence. For I am sure that many persons fear poverty and disease. And like evils. But I do not perceive that they revere the objects of their fear. Very true. But where reverence is, there is fear. For he who has a feeling of reverence and shame about the commission of any action fears and is afraid of an ill reputation. No doubt, Socrates. Then we are wrong in saying that where there is fear there is also reverence. And we should say where there is reverence there is also fear. But there is not always reverence where there is fear. For fear is a more extended notion and reverence is a part of fear just as the odd is a part of the number, and a number is more extended, a more extended notion than the odd, and I suppose that you follow me now. I follow quite well. That was the sort of question which I meant to raise when I asked whether the just is always the pious, or the pious is always the just, and whether there may not be justice where there is not piety. For the justice is the more extended notion of which piety is only a part do you dissent? No, I think that you are quite right. Then, if piety is a part of justice, I suppose that we should inquire what part. If you had pursued the inquiry in the previous cases, for instance, if you had asked me what is an even number and what part of a number the even is, I should have had no difficulty in replying a number which represents a figure having two equal sides. Do you not agree? Yes, I quite agree. In like manner, I want you to tell me what part of justice is piety or holiness, that I may be able to tell Melitus not to do me injustice, or to indict me for impiety, as I am now adequately instructed by you in the nature of piety or holiness and their opposites. Piety or holiness, Socrates, appears to me to be the part of justice which attends to the gods, and there is the other part of justice which attends to men. That is good, Euthyphro, yet still there is a little point about which I should like to have further information. What is the meaning of attention? For attention can hardly be used in the same sense when applied to the gods as when applied to other things. For instance, horses are said to require attention, and not every person is able to attend to them, but only a person skilled in horsemanship can attend to them. Is that not so? Certainly. I should suppose that the art of horsemanship is the art of attending to horses? Yes. 
nor is everyone qualified to attend to the dogs, but only the huntsmen. True. And I should also conceive that the art of the huntsman is the art of attending to dogs. Yes. As the art of the oxherd is the art of attending to oxen. Very true, Socrates. In like manner, holiness or piety is the art of attending to the gods. That would be your meaning, Euthyphro. Yes, yes, Socrates. And is not attention always designed for the good or the benefit of that to which the attention is given? And in the case of horses, you may observe that when attended by the horsemen, they are benefited and improved, are they not? Very true, Socrates. As the dogs are benefited by the huntsman's art and the oxen by the art of the oxherd, and all other things are attended or attended for their good and not for their hurt. Certainly not for their hurt, Socrates, but for their good, of course. And does piety or holiness, which has been defined to be the art of attending to the gods, benefit or improve them? Would you say that when you do a holy act, you make any of the gods better? No, no, that was certainly not what I meant, Socrates. And I, Euthyphro, never supposed that you did. I asked you the question about the nature of the attention, because I thought that you did not. You do me justice, Socrates, that is not the sort of attention which I mean. Good, but I still must ask, what is this attention to the gods which is called piety? It is such, Socrates, as servants show to their masters. I understand the sort of ministration to the gods. Exactly, Socrates. Then medicine, Euthyphro, is also a sort of ministration or service, having in view to the attainment of sub-object, would you say of health? I should say medicine concerns itself with the attainment of health. Again, Euthyphro, there is an art which ministers to the shipbuilder with a view to the attainment of some result. Yes, Socrates, with a view to the building of a ship, as there is an art which ministers to the house builder with a view to the building of a house. That is true, Socrates. And now tell me, my good friend, about the art which ministers to the gods. What work does that help to accomplish? For you must surely know if, as you say, you are of all men living the one who is best instructed in religion. And I speak quite the truth, Socrates. Tell me then, O oh, Tell me, what is that fair work which the gods do by the help of our ministration? Many and fair, Socrates, are the works which they do. Why, my friend, is their work so general, but the chief of them is easily told? What? Would you say not that victory in war is the chief of them? Certainly, Socrates, that is the chief goal of the gods. Many and fair, too, are the works of the husbandmen, if I am not mistaken, Euthyphro. But this chief work is the production of food from the earth? Exactly. And of the many and fair things done by the gods, which is the chief or principal one? I have told you already, Socrates, that to learn from these things accurately will be very tiresome. Let me simply say that piety or holiness is learning how to please the gods in word and by prayers and sacrifices, which piety is the salvation of families and states, just as the impious, which is unpleasing to the gods, is their ruin and destruction. I think that you could have answered me in much fewer words the chief question which I asked you, Thifro, if you had chosen, but I see plainly that you are not disposed to instruct me dearly not. 
else why when we reached the point did you turn aside had you only answered me i should have truly learned of you by this time the nature of piety now as the asker of a question is necessarily dependent on the answerer whither he leads i must follow and can only ask again what is the pious and what is piety do you mean that they are a sort of science of praying and sacrificing yes yes i do socrates and sacrificing is giving to the gods and prayer is asking to the gods yes socrates upon this view then piety is a science of asking and giving you understand me capitally socrates yes yes my friend then the reason is that i am a votary of your science and give my mind to it and therefore nothing which you say will be thrown away upon me please then to tell me what is the nature of this service to the gods do you mean that we prefer requests and give gifts to them yes i do is not the right way of asking to ask of them what we want certainly and the right way of giving to them is to give in return what they want of us there would be folly in an art which gives to anyone that which he does not want very true socrates then piety euthyphro is an art which gods and men have of doing business with one another that is an expression which you may use if you like socrates but i have no particular liking for anything but the truth euthyphro i wish however that you would tell me what benefit accrues to the gods from our gifts there is no doubt about what they give to us for there is no good thing which they do not give but how we can give any good thing to them in return is far from being equally clear if they give everything and we give nothing then that must be an affair of business in which we have a very greatly the advantage of them and do you imagine socrates that any benefit accrues to the gods of our gifts but if not euthyphro what is the meaning of gifts which are conferred by us to the gods what else but tributes of honor and as i was just now saying socrates what pleases them piety euthyphro it's piety then that is pleasing to the gods but not beneficial or dear to them i should say that nothing could be dearer socrates then once more the assertion is repeated about piety is dear to the gods certainly socrates and when you say this can you wonder at your words not standing firm but walking away will you accuse me of being this the the daedalos who makes them walk away not perceiving that there is another and far greater artist than daedalos who makes them go round in a circle and he is yourself for the argument as you will perceive comes round to the same point where we were not saying that the holy or the pious was not the same with that which is loved of the gods have you forgotten that euthyphro i quite remember socrates and are you not saying that that which is loved of the gods is holy and is not the same as that which is dear to them do you see true very true socrates then either we are wrong in the former assertion or if we were right then we are wrong now one of the two must be true socrates then we must begin again and ask what is piety that is an inquiry which i shall never be weary of pursuing as far as in me it lies and i entreat you not to score me but to apply your mind to the utmost and tell me the truth 
For if any man knows you, Thifro, you are he, and therefore I must detain you like Proteus, until you tell, if you had not certainly known the nature of piety and impiety, I am confident that you would never, on behalf of a serf, a farmer, have charged your aged father with murder. You would not have run such a risk of doing wrong in the sight of the gods, and you would have had too much respect for the opinions of men. I am sure, therefore, that you know the nature of piety and impiety. Speak out then, my dear Euthyphro, and do not hide your knowledge. It must be said at another time, Socrates, for I am in a hurry and I must go now. Alas, my companion, and will you leave me in despair? I was hoping that you would instruct me in the nature of piety and impiety, and then I might have cleared myself of Melitus and his indictment. I would have told him that I had been enlightened by Euthyphro, and had given up rash innovations and speculations, in which I indulged only through ignorance, and that now I am about to lead a better life. And that was the first part of the trial and death of Socrates by Plato. Now that was an interesting play. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed my my voice acting. It was kind of fun to do. So, you know, chat to me about it. Uh, tell me if you enjoyed it or not. Either yeah, let's see if let's do some more, or uh, hell no, let's not let's not do that again ever. Um, you know, whatever it is, I'll take it. Take the constructive criticism because that's the only way you can grow. But in terms of the actual play, the the content of the play, it's very interesting to see the dynamic between these two characters. In the play, Socrates is portrayed by Plato to be very searching, not very very searching, to be very inquisitive and always inquiring, asking questions about everything that he comes into contact with. It starts off at the king's archon court, which is basically the, the court, the court of the city, where a lot of the, you know, the legal battles are going to take place. And Euthyphro runs into Socrates and he's like, what are you doing here? You're, he's like, you're usually at the Lyceum. And the Lyceum was basically a, an outdoor gymnasium and a lot of it was outside the walls of Athens that a lot of young boys would go and engage in exercises and athletic competitions. And it's also where Socrates would hold a lot of his conversations with intellectuals there in the city. So it's kind of a communal place. And he's like, what are you doing here? You're usually not involved in any political matters. You're more of a intellectual guy looking for scientific answers to things about life and not involved in politics, the everyday politics of a city. So they talk a little bit, and then they fall into this conversation about piety and impiety, religious action and non-religious action. And it's a big sticking point. And it's interesting to see in a time in ancient Greece where you'd think that religion is a huge part of it, and you can't question the gods at all. You know, a big part of the lifestyle. Because a lot of what we know now is the mythology and we associate the mythology to be truth for those people at that time. And that truth could never be overridden. So everybody during that time period would be very devoted to that truth. But it was very much the opposite in ancient Greece. People were always searching for truth. At least people that Socrates would work around. And they had no issue with questioning their religious beliefs. And that's what he's doing here with, with Euthyphro. Euthyphro claims to be this super 
awesome expert on all things religion. And and Socrates says, okay, tell me more about it. But he can't. Euthyphro can't get a good solid definition on the idea of being religious or not being religious or what action is religious and what is not. He can tell you what is good and what is bad, but he can't tell you why. And that's what Socrates is trying to do. Bottom line, he's trying to get an answer on how to solve what is good, first of all, which is kind of like a given. You can kind of tell what is good or what is not good. But he, the more important question is why? Why? Why is it good? Why is it good? Why is this bad? And the main idea that, that Plato is trying to get out of this is to show how thoughtful Socrates was as a person. Because remember, he's writing these after his death. And this is also very recently after his death. So he's still a student of, of Socrates and he's idolizing him in this in this play. This dialogue is basically showing the capabilities of him as a person. He's always questioning and he's he knows how to keep these questions going and to not unsettle, but to help people think. And near the end, he also says, you know, if you knew, basically, he basically says to Euthyphro, if you knew you, what you were talking about, we would have had this conversation done very, very, very much sooner. And then I could have gone to Miletus and said, you know what, I have had this experience with a religious expert, and I know my misdoings, and I know I was wrong, and I will fix it, and this and that, and, and maybe have gotten off, and not had to suffer a death penalty. But he didn't, you know, he couldn't get that information from Euthyphro. And, and it shows, or what Plato's trying to show, is that his mind was too much for the world that they were living in. He was, I guess for lack of a better phrase, uh, he was too smart for his own good. And in going about searching for answers, he kind of, you know, shot himself in the foot. You know, he, he stepped a little too far. And he kind of tripped and, and people saw, and now he got in trouble for it. And Plato writes Socrates in a very clear way. All his words, nothing's minced. Everything is very clear and very identifiable. And what, everything that he says, even his questioning and his re-questioning and his thought experiments and things like that, he uses a lot of examples so he can get his point across. And what he does is that he uses the character of Socrates in the play to, of course, identify Socrates as teacher. But then the character of Euthyphro, whether he was true or not, plays the role of that government that was ill-prepared for such a strong mind because Euthyphro doesn't know how to counter anything that Socrates is telling him. He doesn't know how to answer his questions, even though he is praised as, or he praises himself as a religious expert. It's basically taking a jab at a government that says that they're all good or all seeing or all knowing, but they're not. There are people that know more and there are people that maybe they didn't overstep. Maybe they were just asking the right questions, the questions that may have unsettled people in power, but they were questions that needed to be said nonetheless questions that needed to be raised in order to move things in a better direction. And I think in both ways, in terms of each character, whether you know all or do not know all, it's nice to see characters and, and people written in this way. Recently, I heard a little thing to live by, 
I read it somewhere. I can't, I can't remember where I did. But the person said, basically, everyone is smarter than you at something. And as soon as you kind of get that into your head and, and wrap your mind around it, you'll live better in life. Everyone is smarter at you at something. And in this play, this is very clear. Socrates is smarter at Euthyphro at crafting arguments. And Euthyphro doesn't know how to handle that. And in the end, after all this argumentation, this debate, this talking, Euthyphro just ends it. And the resolution, there is no resolution. The main conflict of the play, what is piety, what is impiety, is not really solved. Because remember, at the end, Socrates re-asks the question. They're like, he's like, tell me again. I mean, at this point, you should have told me what it is. You should give me some sort of guidelines in life. You're this expert, but he doesn't. And I think that's a connection that you could really make, the weird connection that you can make between the words of this play and the idea that somebody knows something better than you do. Because for one, we shouldn't be scared of people that know more than us because it's only human. You can't know everything in the world. And just frankly, you wouldn't even want to know everything in the world because some things you just don't find interest in. But the things that you don't find interest in, others might love. And then the other thing is just to not be afraid to teach people, to raise debates and understand that questions are questions. They're not attacks. He says in the play, Socrates says that I'm not searching for anything but the truth. He says, I'm not going to attack anyone. Everything that I'm saying here is nothing's personal. I just want to find out the truth. I just want to find out what makes this idea tick. Where are we going with our thoughts? And in a world now where things are very tense and very heated and very toxic, I think we need to re-engage that sort of thinking. The thinking that brings apart questions and attacks. Because questions are questions and attacks are harmful. And as soon as we can accept that other people know things, we'll be all the better for it. Because in some situations, we're a Socrates. And in others, we're simply a Euthyphro. Thank you for listening to this episode of Text to Life, a podcast series from The Logs. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. Go right now to our merch store and get yourself some awesome swag from the logs. You can grab a transcription of the episode by listening on YouTube. Follow us on all our social media platforms. And above all, remember to laugh a little.